You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network brought to you by Onyx Maps. Onyx is an app you can go and get from an app store and you download it and you put it on your phone and now you have a digital mapping service on your phone with GPS capability right so you can look at a topographic map you can look at a satellite map or you can look at their hybrid version which is a combination of both that's my favorite layout the best part about onyx in my opinion is it gives you the ability to leave these little things called waypoints and each waypoint is information that you can use at a later date for example whether i'm using a are going to check a trail camera or I'm going to set up a tree stand or I want to leave a trail from my truck to my tree stand so I can navigate better in the dark. Onyx allows you to do so many different things that actually help you become a more efficient outdoorsman. Again, whether you're hunting or fishing or just enjoying nature, you can leave these waypoints and it's basically a journal of where you've been and what you were doing. You can also leave waypoints for scrapes and rubs or where you saw a turkey or where you found some mushrooms or uh, look for boat landings or where you found a nice pocket of fish. All right. If you want to find out more information about Onyx, visit onyxmaps.com or you can go to your app store and search for it there. You can also save 20% by entering the discount code NATION20 for first-time users. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Iowa Sportsman Podcast, the number one source for hunting and fishing information, strategy and tactics, as well as conversations surrounding conservation efforts and other outdoor activities in the great state of Iowa. I'm your host, Dan Johnson, and this episode of the Iowa Sportsman Podcast starts right now. All right, ladies and gentlemen, we're back, and this week we're talking about fishing again, but this time we're talking about ice fishing with returning guest Rod Wooten. Rod is a experienced ice fisherman and he's going to kind of walk us through a little bit of everything, what he's doing this time of year. We, uh, we kick the show off talking about ice because you can't go ice fishing without ice. We talk about how it's made. We talk about when it's safe to get on there, when you better get off, uh, and you know whether that correlates with good ice making and uh, all that good stuff. We also talk about what he's doing this time of year to prepare for first ice, and he's also talking with us today about the gear that he uses, what he's, uh, what he's throwing, for what species, all that stuff. So it's a really good podcast. Um, And from my understanding, ice fishing is one of the fastest growing forms of fishing that there are. So if you have never been ice fishing and want to go ice fishing, this is the perfect podcast for you to listen to. And if you know somebody who wants to listen to a podcast about ice fishing, send send, uh, them this episode and spread the word. So... Other than that, we got to make sure we talk a little bit today about Bondurant Custom Furniture, right? They are a partner of this podcast, and uh, they're out of Bondurant, Iowa, and they have a website, 
bondurantcustomfurniture.com. Now, what you need to do is you need to go to that, that website and you need to take a look at the custom furniture that these guys build. It's, it's rad. It's badass. Um, I've been on the website. I've seen it firsthand. What their specialty is, is they take old whiskey barrels and they turn them into tables and chairs and artwork and lighting fitch fixtures, coffee tables, you name it. These guys are making some incredible furniture uh, and uh, I think you guys need to go check it out. So, bondurantcustomfurniture.com. Other than that, let's get into today's ice fishing podcast with our guest, Rod Wooten. All right, everybody, welcome back to the Iowa Sportsman Podcast, and today we're getting away from deer hunting, and we're coming back to fishing, and specifically ice fishing, and uh, no better person to have on the podcast today than Rod Woten. What's up, man? Uh, just getting ready for the ice to form. It should be coming here pretty quick, I think. Yeah, so how, how far are we out, you think, from first ice? Uh, I think conceivably guys could be on the ice by the end of next week we've got some really low temps in the forecast that look really good for making ice yeah you know the, the water temps are already low we just need to get some good low temps to lock it up and then we're in business yeah let me ask you something about that because i've noticed that uh you know just driving around in the mornings you can see a film over top of, of calm water or backwater or whatever and uh yep. ice you know, there, it's ice and then it goes away by the time the sun comes up. How cold yeah. does it have to be for, and consistently cold, for ice to form? I mean, is it is ice forming a fast thing? Um, it's not as fast as you might think. Uh, the water has to be primed. It has to be the proper temperature so that once the air temperature does get low enough to start freezing things up, you don't have to cool the water down any further. And anytime you've got any kind of current or wind that creates ripples on the surface, that's going to slow down that freezing process. So it could be 31 or 30 degrees, but if it's really windy, you're not going to get any ice forming. So it's a combination of a lot of factors. If it's still and the water is already cooled down into the 40s, you know, the upper 30s, it could lock up overnight. Okay. So the key is if you get those cold temperatures during the day, so that they continue that freezing that started at night. Because a lot of what you're seeing is it freezes overnight, then it gets warm during the day, and it all melts. So yeah. if we can get some some lower daytime highs, um, that'll really go a long ways towards locking up those lakes for us. Gotcha. So what does the sun, the, the impact of the sun play, even on below freezing temperature days uh, on ice? Yeah. Uh, you know, even on a cold winter day, if you go out and there's a bright sun, you can feel the heat from the sun. Right. And so it'll, do, it'll have the same effect on the ice. In fact, a lot of times you'll notice that the, the end of the lake that gets the least amount of sun will be the first one to freeze. So a lot of times guys will target that other end of the lake for early ice rather than going to the end that's, that's always gets the most sun, you know. Um, the bottom content also, if it's a dark bottom, it will absorb that heat and make the water that much warmer. Um, at late ice, you want to avoid those areas because those are going to be the first ones to lose their ice because that sun beats down through the ice. That bottom holds that heat in and it melts the ice just that much quicker. Gotcha. So there's a whole bunch of different scenarios, it sounds like, to when ice is going to form depending on the body of water, uh, current, you know, wind and yep. uh, exposure to the sun, right? For sure. Absolutely. Okay. Yep. So uh, what body of water do you ice fish on the most, would you say? 
Uh, and I would, I would probably say up in the Spirit Lake, Okaboji area. Those are kind of my favorite lakes to fish. And, um, they're almost always the first ones in the state to get ice, too. They've got kind of their own little microclimate up there because they do have that proper combination of, uh, you know, sunlight, temperatures, the wind control. So that's usually the first place to get ice and usually the last place to lose ice. And so that's one of the places I make it to as many times as I can over the course of the winter. Gotcha. So what about what kind of conditions up there make make that ice this time of year um how many days in a row uh of cool temperatures does it typically take to get enough ice you know to start getting out there and doing some ice fishing yeah if you get lows down in the teens or single digits overnight and you get you know highs in the 20s um in two or three days you could have a nice ice to be out there on foot okay all right yeah Uh, now on the back end here uh, i feel it's important you know let's say you got uh a couple inches of ice, you know, what, what is safe ice? How, how thick? Uh, typically I don't recommend anything under than three. I think the DNR says four to five inches is safe for foot traffic. Um, depends on your size. I'm a bigger guy. So I'm the guy that like to set up first and check the ice. Yeah. Um, so, so I like a, a good solid four inches. Um, and the thing about early ice, when the ice is just forming, you might have four good inches over most of the lake, but there might be some of those areas that get the sunlight or they've got rocks below that hold the heat uh, or whatever or current or wind has kept it open where you may only have two inches so it's imperative at early ice that you check with every step you take to make sure you're on still that good four inches of, of ice that'll hold you because gotcha. it can change in, in one step yeah right so let's say you know we get into a month like january where uh, i think even february this past year was really cold and we had a lot yeah. of uh, very ex- extremely cold temperatures and then I can I remember a day I think it was in February where there was a big warm front that kind of mm-hmm. made, made its way through. How do you know when to get off the ice at that point? Is it something that you're you're drilling to find out, or you're looking at a specific report, or uh, or is it hey man we've had five days in a row of you know above freezing temperatures and it's starting to get a little sloshy out there. Maybe I need to pay closer attention. Yeah. So I don't like to trust anybody's account. And a lot of people won't actually tell you it's safe ice just because of liability. So I always like to check it for myself. Now I do know a few indicators that tell me when the ice is getting bad. Uh, A lot of people get really freaked out when they see water on top of the ice because it's been warm and snow or the top of the ice has started to melt. That's actually a good thing because that means that ice below is still solid. It's not porous, and so it'll still support weight. It's it's when that water actually goes through the ice, and you'll see this a lot in late ice, like late February, March, and sometimes into April, depending on where you're at in the state. Once that ice goes through, the water goes through the ice, that means that ice is porous, and it's not going to be very strong, so it won't be supportive of your weight. Gotcha. Okay. So yeah. do you have any examples or things that uh, a novice needs to be looking for? You mentioned uh, the water going back into the lake through the ice, uh, mm-hmm. the, the porousness of it. Are there any yep. things that we need to look for that tells us that this ice is either safe or unsafe to be fishing on? It can be very misleading just to, to try to tell by what the ice looks like. The best thing to do is to check it with a spud bore or drill holes as you go. Um, there are certain things that you should probably avoid, like any current areas. Uh, anytime there's a, a bridge, um, those narrows will channel the water. They'll channel uh, current through there and wind, which almost always, you'll notice anytime you go over a bridge on a frozen lake, the water underneath it will be open. 
Uh, so you want to avoid those channelized areas, anywhere there's current, um, anywhere there's uh, rocks that are fairly shallow that are submerged because they will hold heat. Uh, submerged trees sometimes you want to avoid because they also hold heat and uh, help the ice melt just that little bit quicker. Um, sometimes uh, the snow will mislead you too. If there's just patches of snow on the ice and the ice is completely covered, um, you step on that snow and the ice hasn't grown underneath there because the, the snow actually insulates the ice. And so you can actually be stepping on thinner ice there when you step off the clear, clear ice. So oh, okay. I, really, really your best bet is just to check as you go. Gotcha. Okay. So four inches is roughly safe for foot traffic. When is it? And I mean, I've, I remember going ice fishing with my uncle once and I thought I was going to die when he drove his truck, it was just, it was only a, yeah. it was like a, uh, S 10, just a, a smaller truck out on the ice, but it had been cold. I mean, it, it was safe enough for a vehicle, but at what, what thickness do we start talking about like ATVs and then up to a vehicle? Yeah. Once you get about eight inches, I feel pretty comfortable taking a snowmobile or ATV out there. Um, you can probably go a little thinner than that, but that's where my comfort level is at. Um, once you get around 10 or 12 inches, you can actually take smaller vehicles out there, you know, small trucks. I wouldn't take a, a three-quarter ton dually out there or something like that. But um, by the time you get 12 inches of ice, you're pretty pretty well safe with just about any vehicle unless you've got a, a really heavy uh, truck out there. But it's amazing how strong such a small quantity of ice can be, and especially early ice because that ice is uh, it's, it's virgin ice, I guess, for lack of a better term, because it's, it's the first time it's frozen. It's a very, very hard ice. Uh, if you look at it, it takes a, a kind of a black appearance to it. So we call it a black ice, and it's the hardest ice you'll see all year long. And it's also the because it's so hard, it's also very structurally strong. Um, as the winter wears on, and they'll the, have melt and freeze cycles, and you get snow on top of it, and that ice will become cloudy, and then it'll eventually, as you, as you approach ice out, it'll take on that that uh, milky, porous appearance. We call it honeycombing when it comes up in chunks. Yep, and that is the the least strong of all the ice that you could be on. Uh, so you really want to tread with caution once the ice starts the ice starts to look like that. Gotcha. So you're saying the the thawing and freezing process over the entire winter uh structurally weakens the ice. Exactly. Okay. Yep. Okay. Yep. All right. So um let's talk a little bit about safety because uh yep. you know you see it every single year <laughs> somebody falls through the ice or someone loses a brand new vehicle or a snowmobile yep, th through yep. the ice. Um, what are, what are some safety precautions that everybody kind of needs to be focused on before going out? Sure. Probably one of the, the first and, and most important is, is the buddy system. Um, I, I very rarely go on the ice, even during the middle of the season when there's plenty of ice out there, I very rarely go out by myself. And even if you do, you want to make sure and let somebody know where you're going and when you expect to be back because if you don't return when you say you will you can send somebody else to look for you at least that way right um so that's probably the first step you know um and, and the, the buddy you take isn't really to rescue you because doing that would put them in harm's way and uh, you could have these just as easily have two people drown instead of one but he's there more to to go get help um rather than having to wait till they find you already in the water to get help there he can get help as soon as you go through with the proper authorities there to get to get you rescued so Buddy's really important. I can't overstate that enough. Right. So uh, this is a crazy question, but I'm a rookie when it comes to ice fishing. 
Are you wearing a life jacket out there for those just-in-case moments? That's a great question. Um, you know, a lot early ice and especially late ice, when the ice can be so variable, um, it's not uncommon at all for guys to wear life jackets. There's a lot of guys that are too macho and they don't want to wear one out there. Um, but that's gotten easier to do nowadays because a lot of the outerwear that's designed specifically for ice fishing also floats. Okay. Now it's not a coast it's not a Coast Guard approved flotation device, but it will at least keep you from drowning if you go through. Because most of the people that die going through the ice, they don't die due to exposure. They drown before they ever get a chance to get hypothermia. So if you can at least stay afloat and keep yourself from drowning, you gain valuable minutes to allow you to either self rescue or for responders there to get you out as well. Right. Okay. Now, do you know, uh, let's say for, for some reason, I don't know if you're, if you can comment on this or not, it just kind of popped into my head as a question, but do you know any tactics, you know, let's say you do fall through the ice. Are there any any tactics that you can use to save yourself? Yeah. The first thing is keep a calm head and don't panic. Now I know that's easy to say now because when you fall on that ice, it's going to feel like a hot daggers. The water is so cold that it'll actually take your breath away at first. So you got to really concentrate and try to remain calm. Um, you, if you should be wearing uh, picks around your neck, so these are either dowels or you can buy them um, pre-made or you can make your own with some old broomsticks and some nails. But they've got a, a hardened spike in the end of them, and you grab them with your wrists, uh, with your hands, and you jab them into the ice. As you're laying there, you know, get, you get your arms up on the edge of the ice, and that'll give you some traction to pull yourself out of the ice. Because once you go through, you'll get water on the ice and it gets slippery, and you won't get any traction at all. Right. And it's going to be hard enough to pull yourself out because all your clothes are going to be waterlogged, so you're going to weigh extra um, trying to look, to get yourself out of the water. So as you're gaining traction with these spikes, you want to try to get as horizontal as possible. Kick with your legs to bring your legs up and try to get as horizontal. The thought is you want to try to slide onto the ice as much as you can. So the more you can kick and the more horizontal you can get yourself, get those spikes in and pull yourself forward, um, that's the best way to self-rescue if you do go through. Okay. All right. What about, do you wear like a, a collar or something? I mean, I, I take it these days if there's a device that gets wet, it sends out an emergency text to like your wife or uh, 911 or anything like that? Well, most of us, that's what the buddy is for. Gotcha. But that brings another good point, too. You also want to at least put your, your cell phone in a Ziploc bag because that way, once you do get out, if your phone's wet, you're not going to be able to call anybody. So if you can at least keep your phone dry, once you get out, you can take it out of the Ziploc bag and call for help. Gotcha. All right. And we do also always carry rope as well. Um, we, we take the rest of the rescue bag that the kayakers use. That's a throw bag. Um, it's a weighted bag with, with floating rope, so you can get it out there a long ways. Um, you can stay well away from the hazard yourself, but still uh, render aid to your friend that might have gone through. So that's always a good thing to keep in your safety gear as well. Okay. Lots of good advice there. All right. So we've covered the ice, right? Now let's get into the fun part, the actual fishing. Um, <laughs> what what are you doing right now to prepare from a gear standpoint to prepare for the upcoming ice? Yeah. So a lot of us are going through, we're, you know, all the new tackles hitting the shelves. So we're filling our jig boxes. We're, we're buying all the latest and greatest, the hottest stuff, you know, that's on the market this year. And uh, we're going through that and get everything organized. We are uh, getting our, our shelters out. We're making sure the mice haven't eaten the, the canvas <laughs> on those. Getting those ready to go, getting them all fumigated. Um, we're getting our, 
our clothing laid out, getting our boots ready, and we're getting our machines ready if we're going to take a snowmobile or ATV. It's a little early yet, but you don't want to wait till the last minute to get those going because they've probably been sitting on mothballs all summer. Yeah. Um, we're also going over lake maps. You know, we're strategizing for where we're going to fish as soon as that ice forms. A lot of guys, if they're in their boats right up until ice out, when they're on fish that fall before the ice forms, as soon as the ice comes on, those fish are going to be in the same location at least for a while. So those guys that can stay out in the boat for as long as possible have a leg up on the guys that put their boat away a month ago. So that's important, too, to get out there and, and keep track of those fish, mark structure, keep track of waypoints that you want to fish as soon as the ice forms. Gotcha. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. Um, so what are you, you know, on lake maps you mentioned, uh, what are you looking for specifically on a lake map, uh, lake map that is going to identify where you need to be ice fishing? And if you could answer that question from a novice standpoint, but then also someone who's experienced. Sure, sure. Well, generally speaking, during the winter, fish follow a shallow, deep, shallow pattern. So as I mentioned in the fall where you're going to find them, most of the time that's going to be in shallow water. Uh, if there's green standing weeds, that's a good chance that's where your panfish will be, your, your bluegills and probably your crappies and maybe your perch. So if you can find that type of stuff, as soon as things ice up, the fish will still be there. Um, and still, even if there's not weeds there, if there's good cover, the water will be warmer. Um, that's where those fish are going to be. As the winter wears on, those shallow areas lose the amount of oxygen the weeds start to die off and decay, which consumes even more oxygen. And then the weeds themselves are gone, so the fish don't have any more cover. So that's when they start that migration to deeper water. And a lot of that happens when either the ice gets thick enough or you get enough snow on the ice that the sunlight stops penetrating or penetrating in quantities enough to keep the weeds growing. So when that starts to happen, you notice those fish aren't in a lot of those shallow areas. And that's because they're moving out to, to deeper water. So you want to kind of follow in that transition and go to areas where there's going to be a lot of aquatic life, uh, aquatic bugs in the water. Um, bluegills will find those sticky bottom areas and feed on bugs until uh, spring gets closer. Crappies are notorious for going out to what we call basin areas. These are usually like the, the biggest, most bowl-shaped feature in any lake. If you're in a reservoir, it's probably right where the creek channel runs. And those crappies will suspend there, almost in suspended animation, uh, throughout the middle of winter. And they're really fun to fish when they're that way because they're impossible to miss on your electronics. You'll see them suspended marks somewhere between the, the top and the bottom. Um, they're really easy to pick out. You can drop the spoon down to them. And they're out there in opportunistic mode. They're there because out there in the middle of nothing, they're safe from predators because they can see for miles. They can get out of harm's way if they see, they see it coming. But they can also take advantage of any injured bait fish or any bugs that are in the water column. So if you can put something in front of their their nose when they're suspended like that they will eat and you'll catch them gotcha. um your crappies are, i'm sorry your perch and your walleyes will be in those sticky bottom areas again uh feeding on some of the bluegills and also some of the same bugs that the bluegills are eating so that's again that's to that deep transition and then once things start to warm up you get a little bit of runoff into the water from ice melt snow melt uh, things start to liven up in those shallow areas again warm water's coming in you get fresh, fresh oxygen coming in, and those fish tend to migrate back to those shallower areas. So as you get into the last three, four, maybe five weeks of winter sometimes, depending on how long the winter is, you're going to start catching those fish again in those same areas that you caught them, um, you know, right at ice out. Gotcha. But if you just kind of follow that shallow, deep, shallow pattern, you should be able to stay on fish almost all season long. 
Now, let's talk about what is, and maybe you can use the, the lake that you fish as an example. What is shallow and what is deeper water? Sure. For Iowa, most anything over 20 feet would be considered deep. Um, and there's not a lot of lakes that have water that deep. Brushy Creek's one that comes to mind. Um, <clears throat> but almost any other lake I fish, most of the fish are going to be caught in 20 feet or less. Um, another thing to keep in mind, too, is anytime you catch fish any deeper than 25, there's a good chance that they're going to suffer barotrauma. And that's what happens. You know, you pull the fish out and you look in their mouth and their lungs or their uh, stomach bladders coming up through their mouth. Well, that fish didn't have a chance to equalize the pressure as you brought them up because they were so deep. And so that throws that bladder, swim bladder up into their throat. And basically that's a dead fish. Yeah. I mean, there are things you can do to fizz them, that type of thing. So I really don't advise anybody fishing more than 25 feet unless you plan on keeping everything you catch because fish you pull off from that depth from that depth are pretty much dead fish anyway. Yeah. So what's the rule on that? Let's say you catch a, a walleye that is not a keeper uh, yep. and his, his bladder comes out of his mouth. He's a dead fish, yep. but he doesn't make slot or he's, in, he's yep. in that, he's in that throwback zone. What do you do? Yep. I think technically you have to return him to the water, whether he lives or not, he's out of the slot. So he has to be returned. And that's a perfect example. One of the reasons I don't like to fish any deeper than 25 feet for that exact reason. Yeah. That's what my, that's what so, yeah, my father-in-law says to too. Yeah, for sure. All right. All right. So, uh, you, you kind of ran through those fish of where they might be and what conditions, um, you know, there's all this uh, information out there about, you know, before a storm, after a storm, um, what, oh, yeah. what impact, you know, f- for open water fishing, what impact does the weather play on, let's say a lake that has six inches of ice on it? Uh, it's actually the same and maybe even a little worse, believe it or not. Um, I, I, I put a lot of, of weight into what the barometer is telling me. Uh, if I know there's a storm front coming in and the drop, the barometer's on a fall, I make sure I can get out there and fish because those fish are going to be on a tear um, right up through the snowstorm. I mean, until the barometer finally evens out, those fish are on a feeding frenzy. And if you get on top of a, a pot of fish, you can catch fish hand over fist when, when it was like that. That doesn't say I don't fish on those uh, high barometer days when there's bluebird skies. Uh, the fishing can be much tougher, but if you stay mobile and fish for active fish rather than wasting your time on a bunch of, of lookers, um, you can still catch fish, but it's a lot more work. You got to drill a lot more holes and you got to move a lot more. But, you know, I, I don't ever not fish because of barometers doing one thing or another, but there are certain times when I definitely want to make sure that I am fishing uh, when that barometer is on the fall. Yeah. So you mentioned drilling a lot of holes and doing a lot of moving. Um, uh-huh. You know, are there times where the fish, you know, the fish bite is slow or not existent, and then you got to move. Explain why you're doing that and maybe when you're doing that. Sure. Uh, and, you know, a perfect example that comes to mind is, is uh, and, and even, uh, so we're sitting on a pod of, of fish, and they're biting pretty good, but they're all dinks. They're all small fish. They're not the, the size fish we're looking for. Rather than sit there and waste those time on those fish, we'd rather go out and hunt down the fish that are the size we're looking for or even the species. The same thing could be said about in ice fishing. It's really easy just because of the electronics and we can see everything the fish is doing down there. It's really easy to sit there 
for hours thinking you're going to convince that fish to bite. And if you can't turn that fish from a sniffer into a biter in 10 minutes, then you're wasting your time. And you're better off to go down and find the next fish that is hungry and will bite in a couple of minutes and rather than and then do that five more times. And in that 10 minutes, you would have caught five fish that you would have caught no fish in if you just saved that hole and worked that same fish. It's really easy to do with ice fishing, again, because it's so easy to see what the fish are doing. You see them down there, and you're, you're just bound to determine it's going to bite. But I only give a fish so long before I decide that he's not interested, and then I'll go look for one that is interested. Gotcha. So move, how many presentations are you throwing at him before you decide to move, and what might those be? Uh, so I like to do a, a, a two-rod approach. And one will be something bigger and flashier. I like to fish with jigging spoons quite a bit, even for panfish. Now, they're smaller than what you would use for a walleye. Um, but I like them because they have a lot of vibration. They reach out far to fish that are further away from you. they got a lot of flash. And uh, you can bring the fish in with the flash, but yet you can just, once the fish is there, if they're not committing, you can slow that down to more of a finesse presentation and just make the treble look on the bottom jiggle. If that doesn't seal the deal, then I can switch to a small jig with either live bait or plastic on it. And uh, that way, almost always, if I can get fish to come in with that spoon and they don't commit, I can switch over to that jig and usually pick up those fish. So that's a good way to uh, – it's also a good way to figure out what the pattern is. If they're coming in on spoons and smashing it, uh, you want to stay big, you want to stay aggressive. Um, but if they're coming in and then and backing off once they get in there, then it's your clue that you need to downsize maybe be a little more subtle, work them a little bit more finesse. Um, and I'll actually do that before I change colors or anything like that. I'll actually work an area over real well. And if I've done both of those and still, get, still don't get any bites, then I'll look at things like changing colors. Okay. All right. Is there a color or a go-to bait that you start off with every single time and then maybe progress to something different? Yeah, for sure my go-to color is gold. Um, probably my, my top two would be gold and glow red, especially in some of the clear waters we fish, like up, up at Okoboji, the gold really seems to be a, a great color. And I know even like at Clear Lake for the yellow bass the past couple of years, gold's been just dynamite. Um, I think gold is one of those colors that works well in, in clear water or stained water because it's got good flash, but it's not so overbearing that in clear water, it looks unnatural. So the fish aren't intimidated by it. Um, they can find it in stained water but they are intimidated by it in clear water. So I think that's why gold works so well. Um, and I'm a big uh, jigging spoon user. Like I said, I use them even for, for bluegills and crappies. Um, so we, that's usually one of the first things I'll drop will be something with a gold or a glow red uh, jigging spoon down to the fish and see what, they, what they're telling me. Okay. So does that game change when, let's say, you're going after perch or walleye? Uh, perch or walleye will actually I'll upsize the spoon. Um, more often than not, they're wanting something a little bigger, especially if you're after really jumbo perch. But even sometimes, especially if you're chasing walleyes during the day, they're just not as active as they are, uh, you know, in low light hours. So a lot of times the walleyes we catch during the day, we'll catch on a small, uh, number 10, uh, bluegill jig. And a lot of times we'll catch them when we're fishing for bluegills because, you know, they're both wanting that smaller jig that time of day. Once the light gets a little lower, they get more aggressive, then you can start upsizing to the spoons for, for the walleyes. But uh, during the day, it's usually best to go smaller for the walleyes. Okay. What about uh, time of day then? Uh, is there a time of day where the fish tend to bite a little bit more? 
For sure. We, we call those the golden hours. It's, it's the couple hours around sunrise and a couple hours around sunset. Um, during both those times when the light is transitioning, uh, all the invertebrates that are in the water column rise up off the bottom, and it's just like a smorgasbord down there for the fish. And for that hour or two, they feast while they can. Um, they, you know, the crappies actually swim around with their mouths open to just scoop up uh, uh, the, the bugs that are in the water column. So if you can only fish during certain times of the day, if you could hit either the sunrise or the sunset bite, that's the one you want to hit for sure. Yeah, yeah. All right. So that, and that brings me to a whole, you know, different question. I have no idea. I have no idea how these fish survive the way they survive every year. And it, it sounds like there's a lot of uh, animals that live in the mud and in the bottom of the yeah. the lake that come out on at those times what specifically you said some invertebrates do you have any specifics for us of of what these fish are feeding on throughout the winter yeah absolutely uh probably your two biggest ones are mayfly larvae and bloodworms uh, lakes like clear lake i know that the, the bloodworm population there is very large that's part of the reason the yellow bass do so well there but as a fly fisherman i know how important mayflies are to just about every fish that swims, you know, in, in the, 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 uh, spring creeks of Northeast Iowa, we fish mayflies for trout up there, but anywhere there's water, you're going to have one species or another of mayfly. And they live down in that mud. And some of them are down there for seven years, 10 years before they progress through their life cycles and come to the surface. And so that whole time they're down there, they're digging burrows in the mud and, and moving around. And, and there's certain places in the lakes where the mud's better for burrowing than others. Uh, and perch fishermen pay particular attention to that because perch are notorious for digging these bugs right out of the mud. In fact, sometimes when we're fishing for perch with spoons, we'll actually drop it into the mud and the perch will scoop it up and you'll set the hook and you'll pull a perch up and he's got your spoon in his mouth with a mouthful of mud. Because that's how they're eating these bugs too. They'll, they'll dig them right out of that mud. So when you find one of those spots where there's a lot of perch activity or a lot of bluegill activity, pretty good chance that's that bottom composition that those burrowing insects really like. And that'll be the same from year to year to year. So you can go back to that spot and it should hold fish, um, you know, annually. Wow. That's crazy. I never, <laughs> I, I never knew that. I just thought that it yeah. was like, they just kind of sit there and don't do anything for four months and wait till the bugs and the bait fish and all that stuff are uh, come back in. What, what are the bait yeah. fish like minnows and shad uh, doing this mm -hmm. time of year? So they, they become lethargic too, just like the other fish. I mean, their metabolism does slow down, but they still need to keep calories coming in. Um, it becomes much more a game, whether you're a forage fish or a, or a predator fish, it becomes much more of a game. How many calories will I expend chasing this fish and how many calories will it gain me? Because you don't want to go negative. And that's why, like I talked about the crappies that are suspended out over the basin, they're just there because it's effortless for them. And if there's something drifting by in the water column, they'll eat it. Now, they're not going to chase something a long ways because they'll expend more calories than they take in. They are opportunistic. So if it's there in front of them, they'll eat it, but they're not going to chase it a long way. So, you know, midwinter when things really slow down, that's, that becomes the game for the fish is, is balancing out how many calories do I expend to eat any given piece of food and how many calories am I going to get from it. So they got to keep real close track of that, you know, through that, the, the dead period of winter. Is that why I see, like, you know, uh, a guy on the ice, if he catches them right, you know, he, he finds a pocket of fish 
and mm-hmm. they just get hammered. I mean, like they are yeah. pulling a fish out every single, it, it, you know, it's almost like fish in a barrel, so to speak. Right. Yeah. Is, is yeah. that, it's a scenario similar to that. Absolutely. And there are certain species that are even more susceptible that uh, perch should be in the, probably the most well-known one. If you can get a pod of perch and they may not be real actively feeding at first, um, but if you can get them fired up, uh, a lot of tricks, one of the tricks a lot of guys will use is they'll hook a perch and they'll leave him down there and drop another rod down. And that perch swimming around with that hook in his mouth gets those other perch fired up and it starts a feeding frenzy. And so, you know, you hook another perch and bring him up. And as long as you keep one down there swimming around, you're going to keep him fired up. Uh, if there's two of you, a lot of times what we'll do is we'll just take turns dropping down the hole. As soon as one guy pulls the fish up, the next guy will drop down and get in a fish and just keep alternating. And that way you can keep the fish fired up, keep them active. And perch like to move anyway, so the longer you can keep them interested, the more the longer they're going to stay underneath you. Um, yellow bass on Clear Lake is another perfect example of that. Uh, you know, when I'm fishing yellow bass, I'm not really even looking for those ones and twos and threes. I'm looking for those schools where there's lots of competition. I can get them fired up, and I can keep them right underneath me for long periods of time. Yeah, wow. That's crazy. That is a tactic that I've now I've I've gotten into a school of largemouth on the Mississippi River before, uh, and oh, to, yeah. to the point where it's just throw it, catch them, throw it, catch them, throw it, catch you know like every cast, every yeah. single cast I'm catching yep. a fish, um, and you know getting them fired up like that. Yeah. I I just it's crazy that you're you're using uh, a trigger basically a fish. Yeah. Seeing another fish eat food, it must be a trigger for them, and you're using that trigger to stimulate another fish into biting your lure, uh, which yep. that blows my mind. That's like science. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's all about competition. I mean, they want whatever this other guy got. You know, they don't want him to have it all, so they got to get in it. And it's cool because you can actually watch that kind of build, especially if you're using a flasher when you're ice fishing, because you'll see that that red school of fish actually grow bigger. And they'll get more aggressive, and they'll come up further from the bottom to chase your jig up. And and sometimes you can stack clear up almost to the ice underneath you when you get them really fired up. Yeah, man, that's nuts. All right, so <laughs> what about bigger fish like a northern or a musky? Do guys ever try to target uh, some of these predatory fish like uh, those two that I mentioned for ice fishing? You bet they do. Uh, a lot of the guys that target those big toothy predators are, are tip-up guys, but there are also guys that will run jig rods for them too. And even aside from those two species, there's uh, another one that we don't have a lot of opportunities here for in Iowa, but uh, you go to Minnesota, uh, the Great Lakes, you go to the Black Hills, and Lake Trout is another giant oh, that's fish. that's right, yep. Yeah, the, the guys target specifically, and man, are they fun to catch. We catch them in shallow water out in the Black Hills, like three feet of water. And they come in like a submarine, and in three feet of water, it's just it just about rips the rod out of your hand. It's so much fun. So what are you, what are you doing uh, then? So you're in shallow water. I, I take it they're cruising, looking for uh, bait fish. Uh, is my assumption? Yep. Is that correct? Yeah, these lakes have a a real heavy forage base of rock bass, and so that's what these uh, lake trout have figured out that, that they can eat. So they're up there shallow because that's where the rock bass are at, and. Yeah, uh, they'll come through, and and if you're jiggling the way, they're going to hammer it. They're okay. so aggressive. Wow! So you're you're throwing a uh, you're throwing a a jig that looks like a rock bass. Yeah, I mean, like a small one. I gotcha. Yeah. All right, because the uh, 
Yeah, they're, they're so aggressive. They don't even care if, it, if it's a big rock bass. If it's in front of them, they're going to smack it as they come through. All right, so let's let's turn back uh, to to weather for a moment. Uh, you mentioned something about the barometer, a moving barometer, and uh, weather change uh, a while ago. What is the best, in your opinion, time to be on the ice fishing based off just weather? So, like, let's say you had an entire week that you could go fishing but you know a storm's coming in what day out of that week are are you and where about on this storm are you fishing i want to be about three hours on either side of that storm front passing over me because you'll say you'll see that activity ramp up about three hours out you'll start to pick up and then by the time the storm hits they're usually going pretty good and then they'll go for another two or three hours you know after that front goes over before things finally kind of stabilize so I want to be out there right in the middle of the snowstorm if I can be. Okay. All right. Yeah, some of my best fishing has been right during the, the peak of the storm. All right. So that that storm gets them uh, fired up, and they tend to bite a little bit more three hours before, during, and three hours after. Yeah. All yeah. Right. Yeah, that, pressure, that storm front gets closer, that pressure just keeps dropping until it bottoms out when that storm front's over you. So that really triggers them. Okay. So then let's say – the the front moves through and now we have uh, one of those big sunshine high pressure days uh yeah so you're telling me that days like that just aren't necessarily as good as uh, a storm would be yeah especially if it's a drastic change like that if it's been like that for five or six days those fish will adjust and they'll stabilize and it'll be much more normal but if you just come off a lot of low pressure and the pressure starts ramping up and you get those bluebird skies it's going to be really tough Gotcha. Um, that's when you want to target fish that are a little deeper because they're going to be a little less affected by the pressure. So instead of going blue fishing, you might go perch fishing or walleye fishing. Okay. Um, so that's one thing you can do to help with that. All right. All right. So any other uh, tips, tricks, or tactics uh, for a guy that's, uh, you know, thinking about getting out on the ice here in the next uh, month or so? Uh, you know, if you're getting just getting into it, find somebody to uh, kind of take you under their wing. There's a lot to take in. It can be kind of consuming. Um, you know, when I first started getting into this ice fishing industry, I went to any seminar I could find anywhere. Uh, I'm actually leaving tomorrow to go up to St. Paul for the uh, the big ice fishing expo up there. It's the granddaddy of mall. It's three days, and there's two of the days are nothing but, but seminars. And so I would go up and I would catch every, every seminar I could, you know, days like guys like Dave Ginn and Ted Takasaki and Greg Wolchinski, um, all these big names in ice fishing, and I would just, digest as much of that as I could. Um, so that's a great way to get into it. Um, learn how to use electronics. They're your eyes beneath the ice. Uh, without them, you're fishing blind. Uh, it tells you not only that the fish are down there, but what their mood is. You know, do you need to finesse them? Can you get them with, with big spoons and big tackle? Uh, what's it going to take? Practice your safety. Check the ice as you go. Never assume the ice is good because technically there's no such thing as safe ice. There is ice that's acceptable to fish on, but even then, you know, even up on the big lakes, Malax Lake, you got 24 inches of ice, but you have pressure ridges, you have open areas of water. Um, in this, as you get closer to ice out, some of the old holes will actually get bigger. I mean, I've seen them grow to like laundry basket size, so it'd be very easy to step into one and fall through. So, never assume the ice is good. Always check it, and never take anybody's word for it. Check it for yourself. See for yourself. Make sure it's safe before you go on it. 
Perfect. Perfect. That's uh, a great place to end this rod, man. Good luck this winter, uh, ripping some lips and, uh, hopefully you have another fun, enjoyable season full of limits. Shaping up to be a good one. Yeah. Oh, I got one more question for you. All right. Yeah. I, I'm a huge fan of like fried fish. I mean, who doesn't like uh-huh. a good, uh, a good, you know, uh, fried fish, you know, whether that's walleye or bass or, or, um, excuse me, uh, walleye or crappie or bluegill. What is your, yep. what is your favorite recipe or favorite meal with fish look like? Uh, it's going to be perch. Perch. That's, that's my favorite fish to eat. Yeah. Uh, nice sweet meat. Um, and usually, uh, just cornbread, uh, wet batter them and, and fry them up. I mean, it's simple and easy and quick. And one of the best ways to have them is actually on the ice. I love a shore lunch when you're ice fishing. Uh, it's a great way to kind of fill those midwinter, uh, midday lull periods before those golden hours at each end of the day. Um, so, you know, you might, might as well enjoy some of your catch while you're waiting for the fish to come on again. Now, what do you, uh, what do you have for a side, side dish? Uh, coleslaw, hush puppies, and baked beans. <laughs> yeah, that's a win right there, man. I tell you what, this, you this summer... I made a fish street taco, and I made a tri- a, tripol- a tripolte fish street taco um, with some tripolte mayonnaise and a, uh, like a slaw with some jalapenos in it. Oh man, it was delicious. <laughs> oh, I'm actually getting hungry that now. Amazing. I should have never. <laughs> I, I should have never ended this because I'm going to go down and binge eat now. <laughs> so, well, again, good luck, man. Thanks, man. Appreciate it. And that brings us to the end of another episode. Huge shout out to Rod for taking time out of his day to hop on and chit chat with us. If you haven't already, please go to the Iowa Sportsman website, iowasportsman.com. Take a look at all the other great content that they're putting out on their website and their blog. Also, be sure to subscribe to the Iowa Sportsman magazine. You can do that at the Iowa Sportsman website, iowasportsman.com. And thank you for listening to this podcast about hunting and fishing in the great state of Iowa. If you guys are going to go ice fishing, please be safe. Shotgun season is right around the corner. Please be safe. Uh, Go out and enjoy uh, Mother Nature as often as you can. And uh, thanks for listening. (laughs) 